The new presenting sponsor for On Education is Classcraft. Are you looking for a way to engage and connect with your students? Then this is the perfect time to try Classcraft, and we have a limited time offer to help you get started. Simply go to classcraft.com slash oneducation, and you will receive the first month free on a monthly premium subscription. To get started, go to classcraft.com slash oneducation. It's unfortunate, and this is true for ladies as well as men, no human being can multitask. Welcome to On Education. I'm Mike Washburn. And I'm Glenn Irvin. Friends, we have an awesome pod for you today. We'll discuss the removal of standardized testing from teacher evaluations and about whether we should be changing the start time of school. We'll also chat about how a video game may be the key to restoring the Notre Dame Cathedral after the incredible fire last week. A new report from Ed Build is out talking about school district segregation. We also have two amazing guests this week. Educator, speaker, and author George Kiros joins us. And we welcome neuroscientist Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath on the pod to talk about his new book, Stop Talking and Start Influencing. So it's Easter weekend, and you know one of the funny things about getting together with your family, I was thinking about it this weekend when I was with my family, is that... Uh, that I, I, I used to sit around the table with my uncles and he used to tell me um, random stuff that I um, I would have never even thought to want to know, but that, you know, he just loved telling me. And so now that I'm an uncle, I get to do that to my nephews and nieces all the time. And that's pretty fun because I love random facts. So I have a random fact for you that, that you can share uh, with your family on Easter, anyone who's listening, uh, this is completely random. You ready? You ready for this one? All right, let's hear it. So, random fact that you didn't need to know that I'm going to tell you anyways. We'll file it under that. One of the best foosball players in the world is a woman from Calgary, and uh, she's apparently she kicks serious foosball ass for whatever that's worth. And um, I didn't even know that there was foosball leagues. Are you good at foosball? Have you played much foosball? Um, I've played it a little bit. I wouldn't say I'm good at it. I don't have a table. And uh, (laughs) I know that my brother has actually played in a league. And it's really popular in California, at least where he's at in Southern California. So, uh, But no, I I mean, I know what it is. And I know how to play it, I guess. I have no technique or anything else like that. I'm terrible at foosball. Foosball's... It's a very hard sport to be good at, I think. So, anyways, there you go. You can share that at your next, um, you know, family gathering and wow them with random facts. <laughs> um, we've been we've been playing a lot of video games the last week. You've been playing Borderlands. Borderlands is a wicked game, by mm-hmm. the way. Yep, I actually never played it when it barely came out. So this is actually pretty fun, and it's interesting. I don't usually play games that are like where you shoot things. So. This is actually, oh, no? yeah, so this is okay. interesting and uh, fun, especially with multiplayer. I find that yeah, the yeah, multiplayer yeah. is interesting and fun. Nice. So Borderlands is pretty sweet. I played some Overwatch with Scott Nunez and Steve Isaacs uh, yesterday, and that was a lot of fun, too. We lost every game, but, you know, Overwatch is one of those games that you can play and lose all the time and still generally you you know you don't tend to rage quit you don't well i mean some people do obviously but i I tend to not get upset losing at overwatch i I enjoy 
playing Overwatch, you know, win or lose, uh, it's it's a pretty fun game. So we've been playing a lot of games. Hey, listen, if you're playing games and you want to play with us, uh, certainly just shout us out on Twitter and let us know what you want to do. And you know whether we have time or not, we'll uh, we'll play. I, I don't think you'll have a uh, a hard time twisting our arms to play video games uh, <laughs> any any time at all. Um, what else is going on? You're you're doing a you're doing. We got a couple personal things going on. You you're doing a keynote. Yep, I am doing a keynote in August. I want to say August 9th. Um, I believe it's a Thursday here in Minnesota. It's uh, in Malacca, uh, Minnesota, and one of my friends that's a, another tech integrationist person uh reached out to me and asked me if i wanted to go ahead and do it and i'm more than happy to go ahead and and do it and excited about it I, i'm not sure how many people actually end up going to this uh one but no matter what excited about doing that and then doing some sessions too sweet what are you talking about um i think i'm going to talk about the things that i usually do which is just basically empowering the field of education uh really pushing uh, to get the word out that what's happening right now is actually amazing and awesome mm-hmm. and that there's a lot of people out there basically with the exact opposite message, which is that everything in education is bad. And actually many, many things that are going on are revolutionary and amazing and really pushing the boundaries of making sure that we get our students involved and uh, their voices heard, uh, you know, all of those things that we talk about as far as on the podcast. There is uh, a lot of awesome people doing a lot of awesome things. So that's definitely worth sharing. Um, speaking of awesome, I've, I've launched a blog, so to speak. I've you know relaunched a blog. I don't know how many times I've tried to start blogging again. But, um, you know, we, we talked to George Koros last week, and uh, we'll have that interview later on in the podcast. But um, uh, since we talked to him, we've been DMing each other a little bit on Twitter and he's been really pushing me to, to start writing more. So, um, you know, when George tells me to do something, uh, I feel pretty obligated to do it. So, uh, you know, if you're, if you're bored, you can just follow me on Twitter and you'll see, see, you know, those posts come up every once in a while. And, you know, if you like it, that, that'd be great. It's, uh, it's been fun. I've been writing a lot, so, uh, it's been pretty neat to to get back onto that um big news coming out of maine glenn big news uh on standardized testing yeah that some states actually standardized testing and you guys probably know as educators is related to our evaluations uh for example in minnesota a certain percentage of your overall teaching evaluation over a three-year period i believe is based upon a uh, a, an agreed upon standardized test score, which usually mm-hmm. is a high stakes standardized test from the state. And so in Maine, they've actually removed the requirement to base teacher evaluations on any test results. So that's fantastic news. Now they've removed the requirement. So each individual district then needs to decide whether or not they will continue to use them or whether or not they're going to do something else. And then the other good part about it is that they also are requiring districts to form committees to regularly review and revise what is that what is their evaluation process and whether or not it's actually something that's effective so uh that's a really really good thing hopefully it spreads to all of the other states and maybe a nationwide movement of removing 
high stakes testing from teacher evaluations. Yeah, it's amazing that teachers specifically were evaluated based on these test results. In in Ontario, the schools are judged pretty strongly by um, the standardized the EQAO, the standardized test that all kids in grade three and six have to take. But they're not the the teachers aren't evaluated based on those results. Now, uh, I'll admit that some schools definitely place teachers in those grade three and six slots specifically because they're good at teaching to the test. Whether that says anything good about you or not is, I suppose, a different story. But um, but they're not evaluated specifically. Like like is is pay tied? To the results of the standardized testing? Uh, it can be in some districts. I mean, there's a, a, a law that's still actually in place in Minnesota. It's called QCOMP. And there's a lot of different types of things like that in other states. Basically, what it is is extra pay tied to standardized test scores. So, um, so depending upon whether your students score high enough, whether or not you would actually get that bonus pay. It's the reason why the, pe- the teachers in Denver actually were striking. Um, it's right. it's that same type of deal where you have a standard base pay and then the rest of your pay is actually linked to a standardized test or something like that. So that's really horrible way of, uh, yeah. of being able to go ahead and get compensated. But it's a very popular, um, you know, I would call it a Republican way of being able to go ahead and, 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 it, and basically keep teachers accountable as far as in their mind. But really, we all know that standardized tests are really not a good measure of most anything, especially not whether or not a teacher is effective. Sure. Absolutely. Well, yeah, like you said, hopefully it starts a a wave, I guess, of people uh, of states changing the rules because they realize that it doesn't make sense. Um, Pretty brutal. Everyone was kind of stuck to the news this week uh, past uh, with the fire uh, that happened at uh, Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. And, you know, there's been a lot of news about a lot of different aspects of that. But one of the interesting things that caught both of our eye independently, interestingly and uh, enough, which was which is um, pretty funny that we we both thought of it at the same time, but without really talking to each other was this idea that um, one of the you know, a lot of people wouldn't know this, but but it's it's definitely becoming mainstream media now is that one of the best ever um uh, replicas of the Notre Dame Cathedral is actually in Assassin's Creed. Uh, they meticulously redesigned the cathedral in the game, and it's 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 so good that they're talking about using it as the model for when they you know they've raised you know somewhere around a billion dollars to restore this thing. They they're going to use assassin's creed to rebuild notre dame yeah i mean that's crazy and amazing that just shows how their 3d uh rendering of their models are so accurate to what the real life and how important that is to the game designers too to make sure that it is accurate to in this case a place a location um and really amazing that you can then use that exact same type of uh data from a video game to be able to then use it to create a 3d uh, model uh, to be able to uh, rebuild it and put it back together the way it actually was originally which is pretty amazing 
I I have a, a bunch of friends. I don't know if if you had any any folks in your Facebook or Twitter timeline, but I had a bunch of friends who have recently been to Notre Dame uh, over the last couple of years, sharing their photos and stuff like that because you know a lot, especially as it was burning, you were worried about how much it was going to burn and whether it was done, like whether it was, this thing was going out. So um, you know, it's great to see that um, it looks like it's going to be rebuilt. And I'll, I'll tell you, anything that brings forward a narrative of video games helping things is good. We've said this before. We've talked about this a couple of times. Anything that hones a narrative about video games that makes it something that's good is, is I think, something we uh, should be for, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, that just shows you one other aspect of Assassin's Creed or just you know any type of video games, how they can actually bring positive things uh, to our daily lives. I think that Ubisoft is giving away or letting people play that ver- that Assassin's Creed. I think it's, I want to say it's Syndicate, but I'm not 100% sure which uh, Assassin's Creed it is. But the one with Notre Dame in it, you can play it for free right now, I believe. So if you go to Ubisoft uh, to their website or download their Uplay app on your computer, I believe that you can play the video game, um, the, 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 the episode of Assassin's Creed that has Notre Dame in it for free, uh, which is really, really cool. Um, last October, we spoke with Zahava Stadler. Uh, she's the director of policy at EdBuild uh, about school funding. And she um, emailed me uh, a week or two ago about a, a, a new report that they've recently re-released that was under embargo. So we, we couldn't talk about it last week, um, but they released a new um pretty concerning report about school district segregation that we should all be paying attention to. I think we realize that many, if not most educational podcasts have historically avoided this type of content, but I think it's the exact type of stuff we should be talking about more because neither Glenn and I are experts at this. We're not Zaheva Stadler. Uh, I think it's best to avoid significant commentary, but we wanted to I wanted to make sure that we give you the top line information from this uh, in the hopes that you click the link in the show notes and you learn more. I, I think that these issues have a massive impact on your classroom. Uh, they absolutely do. We know because this is some of the things that people are walking out all over the all over the country because of um, school funding. This is all related to this. It's all interrelated and it's important that you be aware of what's happening. So the report is at edbuild.org slash content slash fractured. We're going to put that link in the show notes. But basically what's happening right now is American school districts are funded substantially out of local property tax money. Um, This is also what Zahavis Stadler told us in October. Um, And school budgets are tied to local wealth levels. That means that... um, people who can if you can define your area your district and redraw it in a small way with a small affluent community if they offense themselves off um, people on one side of that line can keep their tax revenues just for their super local schools and people on the other side are left with fewer resources Yes, and it also continues to say when school district secessions occur, communities are permitted to withdraw their taxes from the broader community and then, of course, draw the smaller borders around their own children. 
effectively ensuring dwindling resources for the students left behind. It's it's amazing. It's exactly, boy, oh boy, it's, it's amazing that this is the type of thing that is expanding. It's not shrinking. It's not something that's going away. It's actually something that's getting worse. We don't, again, want to provide significant commentary because I don't want to pass myself off as an expert on this. This is a super complex issue, but it's super important that you be aware. So uh, edbuild.org slash content slash fractured is where that report is. Uh, You should definitely go take a look. When we come back, we're going to have two interviews back to back. We're going to be speaking with George Koros and then but with Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath to talk about his new book, Stop Talking, Start Influencing. Stay with us. Do you have plans to attend the ISTE conference this summer? Come one day early and participate in the best hidden gem conference in the United States. Badge Summit 2019 will take place on the Temple University campus in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania on June 22nd. There will be lots of wicked smart educators to collaborate with on topics such as digital badges, credentials, gamification, and more. To learn more about Badge Summit, simply visit bit.ly slash badge summit. All right, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We're pumped to be joined today by George Koros. I'd be pretty stunned if anyone needed to know who this guy is, uh, but we're going to interview him anyways because it seems like the professional thing to do. Uh, George is an innovative teaching, learning, and leadership consultant. That sounds fancy. And the author of The Innovator's Mindset. Welcome to the show, George. Hey, what's up? I actually, I would would tell you that... um, I guarantee you that 99% of the education population have no clue who I am. So <laughs> well, I promise you. Hopefully some of our I, listeners don't I so they can learn a little bit about you. Yeah. That'd be great. That'd be great. So, George, I've been thinking a lot about professional development lately, mainly because it's my job, but also because I think we're facing a bit of a – there's a bit of a crisis. And I, and I actually just left a meeting before uh, before I, I came online uh, where we were talking about this exact same thing. I think that there's a bit of a cognitive dissonance of sorts going on between boards and administrators who want to buy rad new equipment, want to buy the coolest stuff. Uh, let's say a, a class set of dash and dots, for example, because that's the world I live in. So schools and districts buy all these tools uh, and then they sit on the shelf and they collect us because teachers lack the confidence to use them and the ideas on what to do with them. And, you know, we know that technology alone doesn't increase engagement. There are a ton of other factors that go into making it effective. Since professional development is part of your world as well, I'm wondering why you think the decision makers keep omitting this PD piece from technology purchases. Well, it's really interesting that you bring that up because um, a lot of there's a lot of studies that back up what you're saying about like technology and when they look at you know does it when you're saying does it improve learning they're not actually talking about improving learning they're talking about does it actually uh, raise test scores right because they're not really looking at learning they're looking at test scores as the measurement and my contention is that if you just take technology and throw it into an environment, but don't change anything about the teaching and learning, of course, nothing is going to change, right? Like if you're doing notes on Google docs, instead of pen and paper, I don't think anything is going to actually get better for teaching and learning. But I think that 
there's a really, and I, I wish I could just give you a nice cut and dry answer, but there's a, there's like um, a struggle here. And I was actually with, uh, you, when you talked about this, it, it made me think about um, this, these two school districts I was working with. Right. And one of them actually uh, just became a one-to-one district and the other one was not. And so the one that was a one-to-one district they, they asked me a very similar question to you and they said, Hey, like we are, um, we're really struggling because our teachers are complaining. They don't, they haven't had the, the time for professional learning with these devices and they're finding them really cumbersome. I said, okay, well, before I answer and give you any questions on how you can help them move forward, let's talk to the other district for a second. And I said, what's the biggest complaint from your teachers right now? Well, they don't have access to technology. So on one hand, you have teachers that are upset because the technology is thrown upon them and the other one saying, look, we want to move forward. And so my thing is that there's kind of like a chicken and egg scenario, right? Like we want to do these incredible things and you need the technology to do some things that go above and beyond what you can do without it. And so what I've really focused on is really working with teachers so that they can actually understand any devices that they have in the classroom through the viewpoint of a learner, not a teacher. Because too often we get these ideas for what we're doing in a classroom and we, we literally jump straight to the teaching without the learning, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so I think that if you're thoughtful about this process, we have to understand. And I, like I, I always give this example. It's, it's something I'm really passionate about. We talk about digital portfolios and they'll get some like new technology. Some company will like, ooh, portfolios, but the company has no idea what a portfolio can look like. And so then they, they push this and then everyone, ooh, the technology. And I'm like, ah, it's not really, you're not doing anything really great. It's kind of becoming a digital dump. If you want to be really effective with digital portfolios, the first people that should be going are teachers, are administrators. So they understand the viewpoint from a learner, from uh, like, what, what is, how is this going to benefit learning? What, what doors is this open for our students if we use this effectively? But the trick there is you can't do everything you're doing plus this new thing. You have to get rid of some things. And I think that's where schools have an issue often is they don't want to get rid of stuff. They just want to add stuff. And teachers like people are like talking, Oh, teachers have full plates. No, they don't. They have full platters. Right. And, and they're overflowing. There's so much stuff. And so when I talk to groups about this with their portfolios saying, okay, so why don't you talk about teacher evaluation and how that can actually change using a portfolio. And so, Hey, we're going to move this. Here's why we're going to do this. Here's how it's going to benefit our students. And because we're moving to this, we're going to get rid of these things and these are no longer required. And I think you just have to be thoughtful of this is that if you're trying to add learning to the plate of teachers, you have to be very intentional about taking stuff off their plate because the demands are going up on teachers every single year, but the time frame of the school day is exactly the same. And so we have to be intentional. It's like, do we really need to do this this thing that we used to do as much as we're doing it, or is this just part of our toolbox right now? And this is just, you know, do we really have to spend our time? And I'm sure, I'm sure a lot of people are listening to this. Uh, and I can't remember who made this point to me is that, you know, when we talk about assessment, we'll do that a PD day. When we talk about, you know, uh, teaching design in the classroom, we'll, we'll make time in our PD days. But when it comes to technology, that's an after school thing, or you're going to do it at lunch. Right. And it tells you right away, it's not actually, 
important to the administrators because they're not actually embedding it into the time. So I think you just have to be, we have to be really thoughtful and, you know, like whether a school is one-to-one or they're not, if the people who are closest to students can't articulate clearly how this is going to benefit learning because they actually haven't learned it on their own, um, you're not going to move forward. And so I think really making sure that we immerse ourselves as learners first to get to the teaching is crucial. That's awesome. Hey, George, so the first time that I ever met you, I believe it was at the Ties Conference yeah. in 2016, I think. Yeah, um, and you it was. Asked, I was sitting beside you and I yes. made you update your Twitter and stuff. Right? Yes, you asked me actually a very and curious question. It only took you three years. <laughs> about Twitter, and you yeah. asked me the question, am I following you? And that actually stuck with me, uh, being that at that point in time, you had like 100,000 followers, and I had less than 1,000. I maybe had 800. And you said that Twitter was a two-way conversation and that you weren't more important than anyone else. And you wanted to make sure that whoever was, you know, when they were going to follow you, that you were going to follow them back. So that stuck to me to this day. And to someone that's just starting out on Twitter, because we have a lot of people that join in and go, hey, I want to actually start creating a professional learning network and I want to grow within it. What kind of advice would you give them for trying to find their way to create a PLN, you know, especially specifically on Twitter, and that will help them to grow professionally? Yeah, so for me, and I do believe that what I said to you to this day, and I think that's really crucial, is that um, – a teacher literally with zero followers going onto Twitter, but tons of experience can teach me something that I don't know. And I'm always looking for those ideas. I'm looking whether to give them a platform. Actually, I think I wrote a post actually about a teacher who had like 20 followers and like gave me like the best idea on something. And I, 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 I yeah, I do have a lot of followers on Twitter and I really appreciate connecting with people, but really i'm i'm there to like learn and share ideas and and i i do really i do my best to try to amplify the voices of others because i've been blessed with a a large platform and i think that sharing teachers you know uh sharing the work of others things that i think are really good is something i'm really uh, passionate about but i think that for me, when I first started Twitter, because I was, you know, constantly pushed by my brother who's in education and does lots of technology, you know, he just said you should get on Twitter. And so I jump on Twitter and followed like Ashton Kutcher and Shaq and <laughs> Justin Bieber and Justin Timberlake. And I'm like, this is stupid. Like, I don't get it. And then and about a year later, I had a conversation with Alec and Will Richardson and started following educators. And then I saw the power of it and I made sure people knew I was an educator. And so I actually don't follow everyone that follows me. Um, my, I know this doesn't sound weird. My standard is I need to know you're an educator. And if I know you're a teacher, then I'm more likely to follow you because there's some accountability there, you know, um, when I know there's another teacher because, you know, there's there's trolls out there. There's some people that are nasty. And and honestly, I've, I've seen enough of it that I've, pull away sometimes that, you know, I, I'm very thoughtful of how I spend my time in a day and um, very thoughtful to be honest with you of my mental health and do people that mm-hmm. connect with actually lift me up or are they, you know, have yes. issues. And I like, I'm not, I'm not against challenge. Like some people say, well, you're not against challenge or like, you don't think you should be challenged. No, I don't. I think chal- you can challenge people. I think you can do it in a very respectful way where we can learn. Um, but I do want to engage with people that, I can tell are there to help kids, 
and to help um, students. And, you know, uh, I think just connecting. And I, I, I know there's a lot of people like, oh, you know, there's all this self-promotional stuff. And, okay, I don't know people's situations. It's, I don't know what people do. And I, I just think that I, I try to be empathetic of others and know different situations. But you can filter out things you don't want to see if it's, you know, getting to you. But I think for me, I, I do spend a lot of time trying to like pick up ideas and learn from other teachers and trying to give, you know, teachers a voice because that, that whole notion is that we, you know, we look at people based on their followers is ridiculous to me. I think you should look at what they bring to the table and, and I'm sure I, I guarantee this, that anyone listening and, and you two I'm talking to, you know, incredible educators who are on Twitter True. And if they oh, yeah. were, and if they were on Twitter, they would benefit so many other teachers. Now, I'm not saying that they're irrelevant or anything like that, but I think it's because I want access to that wisdom. I want access um, to to some of these things that I don't see regularly, and I think that um, I sometimes try to help people amplify what they're doing because I think they're a little too shy for whatever reason. And I want to give them a platform. Right. And they don't want to seem like, and I just, I think it elevates the profession as a whole, but you know, I, 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 the, the following count is of no significance to me. If, If a teacher has something awesome to share and that's what I'm looking for, then that's awesome. I don't care if they have two followers or 2 million. It doesn't matter to me. Awesome. Right on. I, I don't have a doubt that you're following at least a little bit what's going on uh, with education in Ontario um, specifically. And and we're actually speaking to Merritt Stiles, the shadow minister of education, a little bit later today. Um, I'd, I'd love to know what you think of the situation in general, but maybe just your thoughts on some of these hot button topics that have that have come up. Class sizes increasing is obviously uh, one of the big issues. Uh, changes to the Ontario Autism Program, uh, the proposed cell phone ban. Uh, I mean, and we could go on and on. Is there any one of these that's really kind of getting to you? And, and what are your thoughts on some of this stuff going on? Well, just so you know, Canada is really big. So Canada is really big. So I, I, I'm probably not as familiar um, with Ontario education as the educators in Ontario are. And because uh, I, I live on the other side of the country. And so, like, I, I, I do have some friends there and some connections. And uh, this might not be a popular thing that I'm about to say, but every time um, there's a new government that comes in, like, and here, just to be clear, that I'm not saying that the government is necessarily making any decisions. And like I said, I don't know well enough. They're making any decisions that are um, going to be actually helpful to kids. Like, for example, let's talk about class size, right? So you can't, there's like, there's a lot of research that actually shows that class size doesn't actually improve learning. Now, you have to dig into the research to understand that they're actually talking about old school test scores. And, you know, if you lecture a hundred kids versus lecturing 20 kids, it's probably not going to actually make much of a difference. But if you're actually rethinking what learning could look like and actually having kids more involved, then it does change things. Right. And I think that they're using like a lot of places use research to back up, 
their opinions on why they can do things that teachers who are in classrooms know do not work if you want to, you know, change learning. Like one of the one of the arguments, and I see this um, not only from the government, but actually um, I, I see this from teachers in Ontario. Um, they they talk about the devices in the classroom. There's a lot of teachers that want have nothing to do with them either, and they're yeah, behind, yeah. they're behind now. They're behind the initiative, not necessarily behind. But I think that if you look into it, uh, Jennifer Casa Todd wrote a, a post about it, yep. and she talked about it. And it's not they're not really supposed. And I don't know enough about it, so you can someone can correct me. They're not talking about a hundred percent. You can't ever have a device in the classroom. They're saying you can't have a cl- a device in the classroom if it's not used for learning, which I actually believe many teachers probably are doing that themselves right now. Mm-hmm. So to me, I think that a lot of times when governments come in, um, new governments come in and there's a lot of initiatives, it's it's a little reminder that as educators, that's why I talk about the notion of innovating inside the box. They're going to throw some new constraints. They're going to throw some new rules uh, to do certain things. And as an educator, you have to kind of figure out how do you work and do what's right for kids within inside those constraints? Because at the end of the day, um, it's great that teachers are sharing their voice. I know I think there was like a student uh, rally yeah. and yeah. I think that's great and they should be doing that. But at the end of the day, if things don't change, what are, what are they going to do? And I think that's where they have to realize that we have a lot more say on what happens in classrooms than any government can actually do. Like, again, I'm not saying any of those things are right or they're they're beneficial to kids, but I'm saying there's reality that we have to deal with sometimes. And um, I think, I don't know who you're, I don't know the person that you're talking to. I don't know um, who they are, but I think that there's just a lot of misconceptions about how we look at education. Like the, the one area I just, it slipped my head for a second. Um, Like math instruction is a big bone of contention in Ontario. And you see there's these different factions of um, basically people that are all about the basics. Let's do the basics. And then you have the, 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 the other side of it that's saying like, Hey, we want to actually get kids to, um, really understand math, you know, it's more hands-on and things like that. And and the misconception here is that the other side doesn't believe in the basics. Where, I, where I'm seeing is that they yeah, believe yeah. in going beyond the basics, if that makes sense. And so Yang Zhao, um, he said something, I think he actually said it at Ties, the, I think it was a couple of years before I keynoted, and it's always stuck with me. He said, reading and writing should be the floor, not the ceiling. So we're not just trying to get our kids to do times tables. We're trying to get them to understand, you know, kind of application, things like that. And, you know, I think that's why would anyone have an issue with that? Like, we're not saying this. And I think if we're having real conversations about this, a lot of people that are saying, well, what about the basics? You know, like I learned this way and I'm fine. A lot of those people are doctors or they're math professors. Well, of course, they don't want math to change. They they it was awesome for them. But I, why don't you talk to the community member that failed math in high school? And let's see what they think. Because I don't know if they're going to be advocating that math should be taught the same way it was for them because it didn't work. And so we're seeing more and more 
um, people actually, uh, we just published a book from our company, um, Math Recess, that are trying to make math more accessible um, to everyone. And they're not dumbing it down. They're trying to get to people that didn't understand it the way that maybe, you know, some students understood it when I was in school. Right. And I, I think it, so ultimately, at the end of the day, yeah, we there's a lot of things in happening in places all over the world. And what I see great teachers do over and over again they see the rules change of the game and then they adapt and they figure it out and they always figure out a way to do it best for kids. I have no, you know, I have no power in Ontario on changing things, but I know that when I'm in a classroom, I'll find a way as do many teachers. It's just unfortunate that there's places that don't really understand education, making it harder and harder for teachers to do this and jump in more hoops and saying one thing to the public that sounds really good, but then putting teachers in a situation that they can't do the thing that they're saying to the public, right? It's it's great that you uh, it's great that you said that because I actually preface one of my questions to Merritt with the idea that teachers are resilient and are going to figure out a way to to make things work. So so Glenn and I do conference sessions all the time. We we're asked to speak pretty often. Now I'm actually doing my first keynote slash big speech in in a couple weeks and so but that being said there's there's glenn and i and the folks in our orbit and then there's george coros so so i'm curious about what that's like for you living and working and being and you've addressed a little bit of this but being seen as you know dare i say an education celebrity so to speak and you know people take what you say and put it into freaking memes and then put those memes on twitter and that must be, you know, surreal in and of itself. But this this lifestyle is also probably pretty difficult in terms of travel and being away from your family. Maybe maybe speak to that just just for a few minutes because I think it's a really interesting aspect of what you do and and how you do it. Yeah, and there's you know there's um, I think there's there's obviously doing the work that I do and like you said traveling so much. Um, there's difficulties that that um, many people have no idea. And if you actually look at my Twitter or my Instagram, you'll never see me complain about any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I just don't. It's, um, you know, if you think I fly uh, quite a bit and I have so many horrible flight experiences, but I don't complain about it uh, online ever. I might have conversations with people because I wouldn't want someone hating my keynote and going on Twitter and say, George Crow sucks. But, so, <laughs> you know, it's like if I do United sucks, it's there. I'm no different, right? Like I'd rather um, people have a conversation with me. But um, the 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 difficulties in my work are different, but not more than the difficulties of a teacher in the classroom and some of the things that they have to deal with. And uh, my wife's a teacher, and it's actually mm-hmm. really fascinating because I actually left. Um, education while married to a teacher and what's really interesting to me is I didn't realize how much work I did as a teacher that was kind of extra but just normal Mm -hmm. uh, until I left teaching and saw my Mm -hmm. wife doing it right like I don't want to be around during report card time right I don't want to be anywhere near the house because I can feel her stress from a mile away right Mm -hmm. and nights of doing parent-teacher interviews conferences things that people uh, outside education don't give credit and I I know this is gonna sound weird I think educators don't even realize they do 
because it's so normal, right? And it's yeah. just like all yeah. the sex is like it's just like your norm. And I was like, oh my god, like I don't miss that at all. Like yeah. I don't, I don't miss those late nights at school. And um, so I, I don't want to ever think that like oh like I have to travel. It's so oh, whatever. It's every, everyone has <laughs> everyone has difficulties yeah, yeah. In, in their job, right? Um, as for um, as for you know, I, I if you really think about this, I, I've been writing. Um, consistently probably three times a week uh, on average for almost 10 years uh, in a blog and I might have six quotes from my blog <laughs> that are shared <laughs> so it's not like wow George blogged again let's all read right and I think that of course you're gonna hit the mark on something if you write you know basically the not equivalent much. of 10 books yeah, um, yeah. easily you know in, in, in your book and so um, I, I, whenever I go to speak somewhere, I'm very humbled and I do everything like I'll, and I'm sure when you saw me speak at ties, I do everything to connect with people, even during my talk so that I can learn from them on the spot. And I'll like implement tweets right into my keynote because I want people to, uh, I don't, I want to learn from people too. Like, I don't want to just go there and I'm. You know, like I've seen people saying like, oh, it's really important to connect. And then they don't follow anyone on Twitter and they have no interest in what any teacher says. I'm like, you know, you're not really living that. And so um, I I think that um, I I think I was a good teacher. I think I'm a I think I'm a a good, a really good speaker. And I don't think they're the same skill. I think they I know um, there's people out there that. Um, are really great teachers and have no interest in speaking or going in and that's cool like because they've they found what they're doing and and so I just I appreciate the opportunities to connect um, but I'm always uh, gracious of it and I do everything to walk to hopefully help people there's like a really good analogy about speaking about like do you give people a warm bath or a cold shower? Like, do you just pump people up and say they're totally awesome? Or do you just like hit them hard and make them feel like crap, right? <laughs> and and my focus is to do both. It's to both, to like validate what you're doing and make sure teachers feel appreciated when they walk in the room, but to also push them to become better. Because everyone can, them. yeah, everyone else can, everyone can get better. And, and that includes myself, 100%. And, um, there's things that, um, people have given me feedback on that they don't even realize and have totally changed some of the things I've done because I've been open to listening. Now your delivery of how you give me feedback is very important as it is to a, a student in the classroom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, 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 look at it as an opportunity to learn and like, I don't, I don't like, I appreciate people follow me connect with me but um there's i just i want to shine the light on to other people and 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 really maybe it's maybe because of my own mental health and wellness that i'm very thoughtful of um i i try my best to to do things to make lift others up and that's something i always focus on and uh, i've been in really tough situations with like depression and things like that and so I don't want anyone to feel like that. And so, yeah, that's I go on my way to try to make other people validated in the work that they do. And I just really appreciate teachers and the connections I've made with them. But I, I just it's an incredible experience for me because I get to learn from so many 
brilliant people that so many others would have no clue who they are. George, thanks for thanks for joining us. Uh, and this is this has been fantastic. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for uh, asking me. I'm honored uh, to do this. I, I um, no, it was great to talk with you guys. So I appreciate your passion for education. I appreciate you doing this um, on your own time to help other people. All right, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We're thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Jared Cooney Horvath. Jared is a neuroscientist, educator, and the author of Stop Talking, Start Influencing 12 Insights from Brain Science to Make Your Message Stick. Jared helps companies and organizations to improve employee training, uh, marketing impact, and community engagement. Welcome to the podcast, Jared. Thank you so much for having me on. Could you start um, maybe by sharing a little bit about your background with the audience? It also might be interesting to address what brings you to an educational podcast. What makes what you do relevant for teachers? Oh, believe it or not, I I am one of you. So I started out as a, a teacher back in the day. Um, and that's that was back when the brain stuff started to first kind of become sexy. And so actually, the only reason I ever went back to neuroscience, to school to learn this, was so that I could go back to the classroom and say, cool, now that I know how people learn, how can I p- apply that to my teaching? So believe it or not, that's kind yeah. of my my bread and butter. I, I work in schools probably four or five days a week out here, um, and I help students figure out how they learn. I help teachers figure out how they can apply that. And I think one of the big the big lessons I've learned after 12 years of, of academia is knowing how people learn is very different than knowing how to teach them. And uh, unfortunately, most of the people I work with out here, so like I work with John Hattie now over at Unimelb, a lot of them have no experience in the classroom, yet they're trying to mm. teach people how to teach. So I'm very much of that of that realm of saying, look, I can tell you how people learn, but when it comes down to teaching, man, you guys are the experts. You know better than any academic ever will what it is you do. So you just got to own that expertise, really. I've I've never read a book about such a complex topic written in such an easy to understand way. Uh, you also actually did this. I'm a huge fan of your Ted talk. I've watched it a few times now. We'll, we'll post that in the show notes, by the way. Um, you've taken topics in neuroscience and you've distilled them and explained them so that a non neuroscientist can understand <laughs> them. Uh, you even include, you even include fun activities in the book to challenge your thinking and the way you're thinking about certain things. This book seems to uh, be intentionally designed even, I guess, to practice what it preaches, right? Yep. yep. There's, I had one rule back when I was in the classroom and I still use it when I have to teach at uni now is if I can't get my students to experience a concept, then I'm not ready to teach that concept yet. So it's, Hmm. it's one thing to be able to, I can talk some things, but if I can't get you to feel it, to really get it, then I got to go back to the drawing board. So I tried to bring that. It's really easy in the classroom, but it took me a while to try and figure out how to bring that into the book. But I wanted that same thing. So if every chapter, ideally, there's going to be some game, some question, some experiment that forces you to go, oh, that's what this means. Because once you feel it, you no longer have to take my word for it. You can go, cool, got it. 
now what do I do with it? So I, that's that's so awesome to hear that that it's kind of come across. That makes me very happy. So Jared, I love the advice you give in the book about giving effective presentations. And then you write about omitting text on slides, limiting the number of images on each slide, yeah. understanding that graphs and tables are not like other images, and then being intentional with keywords yeah, and placing them in the exact same location on each slide. So what other advice do you have for our audience as they create presentations if they are using direct instruction for their students? It's, I always say, with especially at that direct instruction stage, is PowerPoint should be your last uh, line of defense. You should have everything so prepped, so locked, so loaded that if you walked into your classroom and the power went dead, no harm, no foul. The slides are there as a scaffold to support what it is you're teaching. Mm -hmm. But what you're teaching, the narrative, the story, the beginning, the middle, the end is already so locked down that eh, if you lose the pictures, you lose a little juice, you lose a little icing on the cake, but there's still solid cake there. So kind of rule number one with all presentations is if, if you're thinking about slides out of the gate, you're making a mistake. Get your story, get the narrative, and story is pretty much everything. And this is what I love. I was talking to some teachers the other day about it is I think there's some fields that necessarily lend themselves to a narrative. So if you're teaching history, how could you not narratize that? If you're teaching geography, right. you can talk about how all this stuff came to be. But then you have people like math teachers that are like, "What's well, there's no story here. But the more you dig, the more you realize, oh my goodness, there are stories everywhere. There was sure. my favorite, we were talking about the Pythagorean theorem was this idea that Clearly, one day it didn't exist, and then the next day it did exist. So what happened on that day? And there's your story. There's always an origin story. There's always a birth of an idea. And if you're at a lack of a narrative for the idea, you can always talk about how that idea came to be. And that just adds so much depth and connection to the material, and that's what people resonate with. I've been writing a talk on failure and I suppose more importantly, recovering from it. So I'm doing a lot of reading and thinking. And in the book, you spoke about an error-free existence versus an error-full existence and said, uh, and I'm going to quote you, uh, when we surround ourselves with things that challenge and confuse us, short-term success may be stifled, but long-term growth and innovation flourish. I think in this quote and in this small part of your book is an incredible lesson for teachers and students uh, that we shouldn't fear errors. In fact, we should embrace them and understand there is a process we go through when we make an error um, and that and, and a true process. Maybe you can talk to that process a little bit, but that in the end, it makes us able to be better the next time when we experience a similar situation that errors make us better. Right. Yeah, there's. I didn't get to go too deeply um, in this book in into it, but I'm going to try and kind of hit it. And, and it's in the TED Talk, I kind of talk more about this idea that the brain has kind of two modes, where one is, is prediction mode. And that's essentially where we're all sitting right now. 90% of the day, your brain is just using previous experiences to guess what should be happening. So for instance, right now, none of your listeners are actually listening to us. They're about a second in front of us predicting our words. And so long as those words are even remotely close, they just live in that kind of simulation. Cool. The other mode is, is what you call active kind of coder mode. That's when the brain flips on and says, uh-oh, either I don't have a prediction or something doesn't make sense and we need to rewrite a program. We need to change something to make sense of this world. 
And there's a bunch of ways to kick the brain into coder mode, but the easiest way is through failure. When you screw up, when a prediction fails, you don't have a choice. Your body, your brain kicks into coder mode and essentially everything is primed to learn. Everything goes into learning mode and says, please fix this, tell me what to do. Now, unfortunately in that moment, I'd love it if we just automatically learned, but we enter into a choice. At that moment, the whole body, the whole brain goes, cool, we need to update what's going on. But then you can choose to say, yep, let me stick in this ugly coder gross mode, this kind of strange feeling mode, or let me shut that down and go back to my old predictions. And 99% of people tend to shut down and go back to their predictor mode. So what happens is 72 hours later, they forgot they made an error, and they stick in their old world. And it, it, the only reason they do that is because it's just easier. It's more comfortable to go back to what we know than it is to stick in that coder mode because it can feel uncomfortable. So half the battle is just to get people to recognize, A, that sensation. What does the coder feel like? And B, choosing to stick in there. It might feel kind of awkward at the moment, but believe me, that's if you learn to love that feeling and seek that feeling out, that is growth. So there's a, a, a story, I don't think I, I talk about it in the book, but it's this is what makes podcasts so much fun. I can kind of share it with you. There was a, It was back in the 30s, and there was a guy named Lewis Terman who was really into IQ testing. So what he did is he ended up IQ testing about 40,000 kids across California, pulled out his top 1,500, so those kids with the highest IQ. And he said, all right, everybody watch these kids they're going to be the game changers. They're going to be the movers, the shakers, the wealth makers. These are going to be the kids that change the world. So he follows them for 40 years. And of those 1,500 kids, exactly zero can even, even remotely be called game changers. They were all kind of normal, but none of them did anything crazy. And he, so he got really angry at him. He's like, oh, these kids didn't work hard enough, blah, blah, blah. But for the longest time, we couldn't figure out what had stifled these kids. I mean, aside from the fact that IQ measures nothing, statistically, one or two of them should have done something. So why did they all kind of not do anything? And we finally came around to what the big issue was, was <laughs> Terman had told them that they were geniuses and that he expected them to change the world. So what happened is, is when they're now older, they're in their 70s, 80s, and we have scanners and neuroscience, we can test them to see what's going on. So to a man, well, at least to the people who were alive, when these people made mistakes, they immediately shut down. When their error alarm went on and their coder mode kicked in and their body said, let's learn, they immediately turned that off because they were so afraid to engage with it because if you're a genius, you're not allowed to engage with mistakes. So if you make a mistake, go away, go back to what you're good at. Meanwhile, if we mm. take people who really are game changers, so CEOs, these artists, put them into a scanner, have them make a mistake, they're the people who engage with it. They seek out those moments and they live in those moments. So the only difference we've ever seen really between highly successful and I guess you could call non-successful or kind of stifling people is error, is failure, is willingness to jump into that coder mode when it kicks on say cool what do i gotta do that's amazing uh let's talk about there's a section in your book about multitasking and why it's impossible we talk about technology integration and being purposeful with technology on the podcast quite a bit and i want to ask you about a sentence you wrote yeah. in the book that i really believe is super important for all of our listeners who are educators regarding technology 
And the quote says, generally speaking, those who utilize technology more often during learning tend to remember less than those who don't. And at first, when I read this, because I'm a tech yep. integrationist, an instructional coach, I was like, what? And But I totally understand it now, that in, in, you know, in, as far as in reference to the entire text here. So can you give us some more insight about that statement and how it relates to the myth of multitasking? Yeah, so it's, it's unfortunate, and this is true for ladies as well as men, no human being can multitask. It's just not, it's a, it's a hardware issue. Um, you can assume if you're ever trying to do a task, that task has a specific rule set, things that matter, things you can do, things you can't do. Unfortunately, we only have one rule set slot in our brain. So by hardware definition, you can only be doing one task at a time. So when anytime we multitask, what we're really doing is we're just jumping back and forth between tasks. And unfortunately, every time we jump, we lose bits of information from each task we're doing. So you end up learning less purely by losing time and losing information by all that jumping. Now, technology inherently isn't bad at all. But what happens is if you think about it, things like computers and cell phones, the thing that make them so powerful and, and unique and lovely is that they can do 50 things at once, is you can have a dozen tabs open. You can have chat open in the corner while typing an essay, while yes. looking up Facebook. And that's awesome. Unfortunately, that's horrible for learning when you're trying to jump between yes. all those things. So what tends to happen is when most people use technology in the classroom, there's no driver or purpose for it. It's just technology for technology's sake. Uh, for instance, so I was just at a school last week, and it was, oh, it would have been two weeks ago, and it was an iPad for every kid. And you'd say, cool, why? Well, because every kid has an <laughs> iPad. Cool, why? Well, because they're good technology. Ah, perfect example of having technology without a purpose behind it. So as soon as kids access it, what do they do? They go back to their normal flow on a computer which is have 10 tabs open, look at Reddit, talk to my friends, blah, 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 blah. In those instances, mm -hmm. technology just stifles learning. But if you make technology, like you were saying, integral to the task, it's not an iPad for every student just because. It's because we can keyword search this textbook. Boom. Now everyone has a very specific purpose for that text, and they're not trying to multitask, jump between different things. They know why it's there, they know what it's for, and they use it for that purpose as opposed to just willy-nilly, because there's tech involved, we're all going to do better. So it's exactly what you said. It's it, because tech, our natural inclination on it is to multitask. If you're not reining it in, if you're not using it for a purpose, that's what your students are going to be doing on it. And you can't be shocked when they do. That's you, We haven't told them any different. So just be very focused in, on why you have a tech and why you're using it. It's a, pretty much exactly what we say all the time, I guess. So you're you're nailing that one on the head, uh, Jared. The the last question isn't about um isn't about neuroscience at all. Um, you you might be in Australia, but I, I know you're a hockey fan. Yes, so, sir. <laughs> so so give it give us some of your thoughts on the on the playoffs, which have been pretty wild so far. Who do you think is gonna win the who who do you think is gonna win the Stanley Cup? This is the most ridiculous. See, I'm I'm from Pittsburgh originally. So now that <laughs> every at the beginning I actually sent out my tweet right at the beginning that said, Okay, this is Tampa Bay's year, everyone else is just fighting for second. And then Tampa True. gets swept. And swept. now 
Calgary is out and Pittsburgh's yeah. out. So all my lovely mm-hmm. teams, my picks done. So I'm thinking at this point, here's my, my dream team is going to be Toronto versus Colorado. That's going to be incredible, but Ooh. I think it's going to be golden Knights and Toronto. And I think because of last year, because of getting knocked out, I think the golden Knights have a trip on their shoulder. I'm going to go Vegas in the end. I tell you, Nathan McKinnon versus Austin Matthews would be a dream matchup. How crazy. And remember when the Avs started to look really bad mid-year and we're thinking, oh, they're not even going to make the playoffs. Something happened in the last month. Man, they look fast right now. We're, we're, we're talking to a bunch of Americans that don't, uh, that don't watch hockey. So <laughs> we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to convert them one by one, Jared, you and I. We're going to do one, one listener at a time. (laughs) So friends, Jared's book, stop talking, start influencing is available everywhere. uh, Including by clicking the link in our show notes. Uh, We think it'll help you become a better teacher. Jared, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you guys for having me on. Thanks for listening to on education. My name is Mike Washburn. My co-host is Glenn Irvin. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website at oneducationpodcast.com. You can tweet us at oneducationpod. Glenn is at Irv Spanish on Twitter. I can be found on Twitter at Mr. Washburn. You can find us on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash oneducationpod. We're also on Instagram at oneducationpod. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we'd be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or on the Google Play Store. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. We want to thank our presenting sponsor, Classcraft, for supporting us. Check out classcraft.com slash oneducation to learn more about them. Thanks, as always, for listening. Stay awesome. See you soon.